On December 21, 1988, 17-year-old David Stewart was watching TV. His family's farmhouse in Lockerbie, Scotland, was covered with Christmas decorations as the fireplace roared beside him. The cozy scene was interrupted when David heard a loud rumbling outside. It almost sounded like thunder, only it wasn't storming. It was followed by a deafening crash. David peered out the window, but there was so much smoke he could barely see. After a few moments, it cleared enough for him to make out the bright orange flames. His hometown of Lockerbie was on fire. He and his father had to figure out what was happening. They piled into the family's pickup truck and navigated through town. As they drove around Lockerbie, David realized this was no ordinary blaze. It looked like the apocalypse. Buildings were torn apart and the streets were filled with debris. He and his father saw pieces of luggage and still-wrapped Christmas presents strewn everywhere. Eventually, they reached a friend's farm. Laying in the middle of their field was the cockpit of a commercial airplane. Pan Am Flight 103 had come apart. Its cockpit severed from its wings and fuselage. And it wouldn't take long for first responders to discover there were no survivors. Welcome to Conspiracy Theories, a Spotify original from Parcast. Every Monday and Wednesday, we dig into the complicated stories behind the world's most controversial events in search for the truth. I'm Carter Roy, and I'm Molly Brandenburg. And neither of us are conspiracy theorists, but we are open-minded, skeptical, and curious. Don't get us wrong. Sometimes the official version is the truth, but sometimes it's not. You can find episodes of Conspiracy Theories and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. This is our first episode on the Pan Am Flight 103 bombing. In December 1988, a commercial passenger jet exploded over the small Scottish town of Lockerbie, killing 270 people. Authorities eventually determined this was no accident, but instead the work of terrorists. This time, we'll cover the day of the disaster and the devastating fallout. Then, we'll examine the international investigation and how two Libyan men were arrested in connection with the attack. Next time, we'll analyze three conspiracy theories about the explosion. Some believe the United States framed its then enemy nation of Libya. Others claim Iran was behind the bombing. Still, some theorists say Pan Am was secretly taken down to silence two American operatives. We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Elevate every morning with Tommy John's Second Skin Underwear. 
the luxurious support of Second Skin guarantees everything will go smoothly. With over 20 million pairs sold and thousands of five-star reviews, guys love Tommy John. Plus, your most valuable assets are covered with Tommy John's best pair you'll ever wear or its free guarantee. Shop Tommy John's friends and family sale right now and get 25% off site-wide at TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. See site for details. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Shortly before 6 p.m. on December 21st, 1988, Pan Am Flight 103 opened its doors for boarding at the Heathrow Airport in London. 243 people waited at the gate, eager to start their long journey to New York City. The passengers came from 21 different countries, but the vast majority were American. Everything seemed routine. One by one, passengers handed their tickets to the gate agent and boarded the aircraft. Once they were settled in their seats, the flight attendants sealed the doors and began their pre-flight inspection. Pilot James McQuarrie introduced himself over the intercom and said they'd be taking off soon. McQuarrie had spent over 4,000 hours flying this particular Boeing 747. He was well-respected by his co-workers, Everyone who knew him felt they were in good hands. In another part of the plane sat a few college students from Syracuse University. One of them was a musical theater major named Nicole Boulanger. She just finished a semester abroad in London with her classmates. Now she couldn't wait to get back home to see her family. 23-year-old Flora Swire sat a few aisles down from her. She'd been invited to a conference in London to present her research on Alzheimer's and was on her way back to the States. She was set to land just in time to celebrate her 24th birthday. About an hour into the flight, around 7 p.m., the plane was reaching Scotland's southern border. Per their protocol, Pilot Macquarie called into air traffic control to let them know he was crossing into Scottish airspace. Air traffic controller, Alan Topp, received the message and gave McQuarrie the signal to go ahead. Seven minutes later, McQuarrie radioed Topp again. This time, he asked for approval to begin the transatlantic portion of the flight. Topp cleared the plane and waited for McQuarrie to confirm he'd received the message. Only the line was eerily silent. He tried the Pan Am flight once again, to no avail. Then, he looked down at the radar to check on the craft, and his face turned white with horror. The small blip that represented Pan Am 103 had broken into five pieces. The fragments slowly drifted away from each other, then flickered and disappeared entirely. Top knew in his gut something terrible had happened. Meanwhile, in southern Scotland, Lockerbie police officer Michael Gordon was on the phone with a friend. Above him, he heard what sounded like a booming crack of thunder. Immediately after, his entire house began to shake. Gordon rushed to the window. His home was on a hilltop, and he could see all of Lockerbie. 
He watched as a cluster of dark objects plummeted towards the town he called home. Then, what looked like a raging fireball emerged from the clouds. It was headed right for Lockerbie's town center. Gordon looked on in terror. He tried phoning the police station, but the lines were dead. Gordon took it upon himself and rushed out of the house to help. The closer he got to town, the worse it seemed to get. The explosion had destroyed several houses and blown the roofs off of others. Scorched metal rained from above, smashing into windows and starting fires wherever it landed. Gordon ran through the destruction, doing his best to dodge the flames. That's when he saw a small piece of paper flutter past his face. It was a perfectly intact Pan Am boarding pass. When Gordon examined the rest of the debris closer, he realized he was looking at burnt luggage and wrapped Christmas presents. There had to be hundreds of passengers on board. As Gordon continued into town, he might have seen the 150-foot deep crater that appeared in a residential neighborhood. Inside the pit lay the wings of the aircraft as well as the tanks, carrying 100 tons of explosive jet fuel. The plane's nose cone and cockpit had been separated from the rest of the aircraft and were now laying in a nearby field. Inside, emergency responders recovered some of the first lifeless bodies. All across town, people were digging through rubble hoping to find survivors. The debris had spread across 845 square miles, almost three times the size of New York City, making it the largest crime scene in global history. But the more people searched, the more they realized their efforts were all in vain. It appeared that there were no survivors. The best they could do was recover the bodies of the Pan Am 103 passengers so their families could give them a proper burial. While the town of Lockerbie was dealing with the shock of the event, Jim Swire was hundreds of miles away in Worcestershire, England. His daughter Flora had taken off from Heathrow earlier that day, and Jim was waiting on news of her safe arrival back in New York. Later that evening, Jim heard a shriek from down the hall. He rushed to the kitchen where his wife, Jane, was bent over, staring at the TV. She tried to speak, but the words were caught in her throat. Jim turned to the TV screen, watching in shock as a news anchor reported on his daughter's Pan Am flight and that it had crashed in southern Scotland. He spent hours on the phone trying to reach emergency services. Perhaps by some miracle, Flora had survived. Everyone he spoke to insisted they would call him back as soon as they had more answers. Hours later, Jim's phone finally rang. It was Pan Am's New York offices. They told Jim that no one had survived the crash, not even Flora. And in the days to come, they'd all learn this crash was not an accident. Coming up, officials begin their investigation. Hi, it's Carter, and I'm very excited to share a special announcement with you. On July 12th, ParCast is releasing its first book. It's titled Cults, Inside the World's Most Notorious Groups and Understanding the People Who Join Them. 
It's based on the popular Colts podcast that my friends Greg and Vanessa host. And starting right now, you can pre-order it at parcast.com slash Colts. With the benefit of years of research and insights, this captivating book has put together a comprehensive narrative that tries to make sense of mysterious groups such as Nexium, Heaven's Gate, the Manson family, and more, exposing how shared beliefs can have deadly results and taking you deeper into the dark side of human nature than ever before. If you're a true crime fan, this book is a must read. So don't wait. There are limited copies available. Head to parcast.com slash cults now to pre-order cults inside the world's most notorious groups and understanding the people who join them. That's parcast.com slash cults. And thanks again for supporting Parcast. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Now, back to the story. In December 1988, Pan Am Flight 103 crashed in Lockerbie, Scotland, killing all 259 passengers as well as 11 Lockerbie residents. With the majority of the passengers being American, the United States launched an investigation into the crash immediately. Less than a day later, FBI agents arrived in Lockerbie in the early morning hours of December 22nd. Together with UK officials, they began gathering any evidence they could find. This ranged from the outer shell of the plane to carry-on bags to packs of airline crackers. Finally, on Christmas Eve, investigators found a piece of luggage covered in scorch marks. The suitcase was sent to a British military lab where they analyzed it further. Based on the chemical components, they came to an irrefutable conclusion. Pan Am Flight 103 had been bombed. After this realization, the U.S. shifted its stance on the disaster. They suspected the bombing was the work of a terrorist group targeting American citizens. Since this was before 9-11, the federal government didn't have as much experience dealing with these types of attacks. The idea of there being a suicide bomber on board wasn't top of mind. Instead, they suspected the bomb had either been brought onto the plane by an unwitting passenger, or the terrorists may have used an airline or airport employee to smuggle the explosive on board. From there, the FBI began collaborating with United Kingdom's MI5 agency, as well as the Scottish police. Together, they compiled a database of all potential suspects. The list included known terrorists, airline employees, and workers who had access to the plane. Soon, the list was 1,200 names long. Meanwhile, investigators continued scouring the Lockerbie fields, hoping to find a clue that might narrow that list down. As the weeks passed, they collected thousands of pieces of evidence, but they were on the hunt for one thing in particular the exact piece of luggage that had carried the bomb. 
While they'd located several suitcases that were stored near the bomb, they didn't seem to have the one that it was packed in. If they knew anything about it, like its brand or its contents, then it might lead authorities to their first real suspect. During their investigation, officials discovered a few shreds of fabric that looked promising. Unlike the other material they'd found, these samples showed explosive damage from an extremely close range. Perhaps this belonged to the bag in question. After a closer look, analysts determined the bag was manufactured by Samsonite. Some investigators flew to the company's headquarters in the U.S. Employees helped them narrow down the exact specifications of the suitcase. It was an antique copper System 4 Silhouette 4000. That particular model had only been made and sold for a couple of years. There were only 3,500 of them in the world, and they were only sold in the Middle East. Officials latched onto this piece of information and assumed they were looking for a culprit or culprits with ties to the area. It was a promising start, but at first, it didn't do much to narrow their search. Investigators felt they needed to examine more evidence if they were going to zero in on the bomber. So the FBI focused on some pieces of clothing with scorch marks almost identical to those found on the Samsonite. After further analysis, they found some of them had been wrapped around the explosive. The items included two skirts, a pair of trousers, and a man's pajama set, none of which provided much insight into the bomber. That is, until they looked at the blue baby onesie found near it. Its tag bore a clear marker reading Malta Trading Company. If they could trace it back to the store where it was purchased, they might be able to find out who bought it. The name Malta was interesting, but investigators couldn't definitively say the item had been purchased on the small island nation resting between Italy and Libya. So they turned back to the suitcase for reference. They used airport records and worked backwards to find where the Samsonite case had originated. Before Pan Am 103 flew out of Heathrow, it had stopped over in Frankfurt, Germany, which is where the bag was loaded onto the plane. But before that, it appeared the suitcase was checked onto a local European flight from Malta. So in August 1989, investigators traveled to the island. They went store to store in downtown Slima, a popular resort town, hunting for the firm that manufactured the baby clothes. When they finally stumbled into a shop called Mary's House, the store's owner, Tony Gauchi, offered some useful information. Gauchi confirmed it was a man who'd purchased the onesie, as well as a few other items. He even remembered the exact date of the transaction, November 23, 1988, almost one month to the day before the explosion. When detectives pressed Gauchi for more information, he went on to list every article of clothing the man bought that day, most of which matched with what was found on the plane. Gauchi also described the customer. He said the man was about 5 foot 10 inches, muscular and clean-shaven. Apparently, he spoke English and Arabic, and per Gauchi's account, it seemed he was of Libyan descent. Investigators honed in on this particular detail. In the eyes of U.S. officials, 
If a Libyan planted the bomb, then this was undoubtedly an act of terrorism. The United States had been at odds with Libya for decades by this point. When Muammar Gaddafi took power in 1969, he pushed Libya away from the West. He wanted to unite Libya with other Arab countries. And when he nationalized the oil companies operating in Libya, including American ones, to perpetuate his nationalist ideology, the United States saw it as a threat. From there, tensions escalated between the U.S. and Libya. American ambassadors were recalled from the nation while Gaddafi expressed his frustration with the U.S. meddling in his affairs. Soon, he began funding revolutionary and terrorist groups that targeted the U.S. government. In turn, America declared Libya a state sponsor of terrorism in 1979. This didn't do much to stop Libya, though. When President Reagan was elected two years later, he opted to confront Gaddafi with military force. Gaddafi responded with similar levels of aggression. The conflict reached ahead in 1986 when Libyan agents bombed a Berlin nightclub frequented by American soldiers. That same year, the U.S. dropped bombs on the Libyan cities of Tripoli and Benghazi. One of the victims caught in the blast was Gaddafi's own daughter. So when in 1989, Reagan's successor, President George H.W. Bush, heard the suspects might have been Libyan, he strongly believed the Pan Am explosion was an act of retaliation for the raids. With this new theory, the stakes seemed higher than ever. Bush needed someone he could trust to continue the investigation. So he enlisted a U.S. attorney named Robert Mueller. Some might remember Mueller from his time as a special prosecutor. He's now famously known for investigating Russia's interference in the 2016 U.S. presidential election. But back in 1990, he was assistant attorney general of the criminal division. Mueller had a reputation as a sharpshooter with an unmatched work ethic. If anyone could determine whether Libya was behind the attack, it was him. He knew that Gauchi's account wouldn't be enough to make a conviction. He had to find a stronger connection between the bomb and Libya. And luckily, the investigators had already found one. While examining the evidence, investigators discovered a small piece of machinery. It had been placed inside a Toshiba cassette recorder in the Samsonite suitcase. Upon closer analysis, they found it was a piece of a circuit board. A similar piece of machinery had been linked to a bomb confiscated in Africa a few years prior. As it turned out, that device was also created by Libyan intelligence operatives. And when FBI agents referenced their suspect database, they found an immigrant from Malta with the same name as a former Libyan operative. Apparently, he'd left Malta two months before the Pan Am bombing. But this wasn't enough to make an arrest. Mueller's team dug further, agonizing over the device, until they saw something on the circuit board's timer. In small, barely legible print was the word Mebo. Assuming Mebo was the brand of the circuit board, both U.S. and U.K. officials spent most of 1990 trying to figure out who Mebo was. But things progressed slowly. 
It appeared as if the manufacturer didn't exist or went by a different name entirely. Finally, detectives found a lead. They believed Mebo stood for a Swiss electronics company called Meister and Bollier. Soon after, investigators traveled to their headquarters in Switzerland to get answers. When they showed Mebo co-owner Edwin Bollier the device, he himself admitted he had sold various timers of the same kind to Libya in hopes of securing a military contract with them. He then gave them the name of one of the Libyan intelligence officers he worked with. Abdel Basit Ali al-Megrahi. Finally, their extensive list of over 1,200 people had been narrowed down. The next task was to link Megrahi to the Samsonite luggage. They knew the bag had been on Air Malta before the Pan Am flight, so they checked Malta International Airport records for any sign of McGrahi's travels, and they discovered McGrahi had been at the airport the exact same time the Air Malta flight was departing. However, investigators were convinced McGrahi wasn't working alone, and soon they found the man they believed helped transport the Samsonite onto the Frankfurt flight. His name was Lamine Khalifa Fahima, and conveniently, he was a Libyan airline station manager in Malta. Coming up, the Pan Am bombers are put on trial. Elevate every morning with Tommy John's Second Skin Underwear. The luxurious support of Second Skin guarantees everything will go smoothly. With over 20 million pairs sold and thousands of five-star reviews, guys love Tommy John. Plus, your most valuable assets are covered with Tommy John's best pair you'll ever wear or its free guarantee. Shop Tommy John's friends and family sale right now and get 25% off site-wide at TommyJohn.com Spotify. TommyJohn.com Spotify. See site for details. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com wonder. Now back to the story. On November 14, 1991, Assistant Attorney General Robert Mueller, along with U.S. Attorney General William Barr, shared their revelations about the Pan Am bombing with the world. In front of millions, they announced the two primary suspects in the case. Their names were Abdel Basit Ali Al-Magrahi and Lamine Khalifa Fahima and they were being charged with 270 counts of murder, conspiracy to murder, and violating Britain's 1982 Aviation Security Act. Muller and Barr wanted to move quickly to get these men behind bars. But first, they'd have to get them into the United States. Libya's leader, Muammar Gaddafi, wasn't going to hand them over so easily. Gaddafi pointed to an international agreement from the 1970s. It states that governments have the right to try those who commit acts of violence against aircraft in their home country rather than extradite them overseas. Gaddafi was well within his rights to cite the agreement. 
But many people in the international community, primarily the US, were suspicious of his motives. In their eyes, his refusal was equivalent to an admission of guilt. So the US offered a resolution to the United Nations in response. It included a variety of harsh sanctions against Libya, targeting the country's airlines, military, and government officials. The restrictions also included a ban on the sale of oil equipment to the country to complicate their refinery process. The United Nations granted these sanctions, costing Libya a reported $20 billion in economic losses. But even that wasn't enough to move the needle. Libya supplied oil to most of their neighbors, and countries like Egypt relied on their business. So some nations ignored the sanctions and continued business as usual. As a result, Gaddafi didn't feel much pressure to extradite Megrahi or Fahima. To him, the consequences weren't as impactful as America had hoped. Instead, the suspects continued to reside in their home country as free men. In 1991, three years after the bombing, an ABC News reporter traveled to Libya to interview Megrahi and Fahima. Both expressed sadness over the Pan Am tragedy and asserted they were completely innocent. However, the U.S. and Scotland didn't buy it, and the air and arms sanctions against Libya remained in place for another seven years. Finally, in 1998, the U.S. and U.K. suggested a compromise. If Libya extradited the two men, perhaps they could be tried in the Netherlands, a neutral country, in front of a Scottish court. But if Gaddafi declined the offer, the U.S. and U.K. would propose harsher sanctions, including a ban on the sale of crude oil. The previous penalties limited only the sale of oil equipment. If Gaddafi didn't step up, they'd go after the oil directly. And that was his number one export, the backbone of Libya's economy. Gaddafi couldn't take that chance. He accepted the compromise and in April 1999, handed Megrahi and Fahima over to Scottish authorities. One year later, they stood trial in the Netherlands as promised. Scottish prosecutors argued that Megrahi and Fahima bombed Pan Am Flight 103. They theorized that the plan went something like this. Megrahi and Fahima traveled to Switzerland to buy the bomb circuit board from Mebo. Once the bomb was assembled, they were ready to pick their target. They then picked a flight to target, one packed with plenty of Americans, Pan Am Flight 103. Megrahi and Fahima flew to Malta, where the flight was set to originate. There, Megrahi bought clothes from Tony Gauci to pad the bomb, hoping to make it undetectable under surveillance. Prosecutors alleged that Megrahi and Fahima then made their way to the Malta airport. Fahima then used his airport connections to get luggage tags for Air Malta, allowing them to stash the suitcase on the plane bound for Frankfurt and escape on a flight back to Libya. One of the prosecution's best eyewitnesses was still store owner Tony Gauci. When he took the stand, prosecutors asked him once again, did he recognize McGrawhi? Now, sitting before him, Gauci testified he did. Throughout the hearing, prosecutors called 234 other people to the stand. 
This included crash site experts, FBI operatives, Scottish detectives, and more. They introduced thousands of pieces of physical evidence, ranging from crash site debris, photographs of the destruction, and official airport records. It took eight months to move through all the proceedings. But on January 31st, 2001, the court reached a verdict. Because they couldn't prove his direct involvement, Fahima was found not guilty. But largely based on Gauchi's testimony, McGrawhee was declared guilty and sentenced to life in prison. Despite the conviction, some people didn't feel like the case was really closed. Many international officials believed McGrawhee was a middleman who may have acted on Gaddafi's orders. So even though the court had reached a verdict, the United Nations refused to lift the sanctions against Libya. By 2003, Gaddafi reached the end of his rope. He wrote a letter admitting responsibility for the Pan Am disaster. Shortly afterwards, the UN Security Council lifted the restrictions on Libya entirely. But there were those who doubted his sincerity. Some felt this was a calculated move just to have the sanctions lifted. Whatever his motivation, Gaddafi pledged to pay $2.7 billion to the victims' families. That's about $10 million for every life lost in the crash. With Gaddafi's promise to pay out and McGrahi now behind bars, there finally seemed to be some closure over the tragedy. But that changed in 2009. While serving his sentence in Greenock, Scotland, McGrahi developed terminal cancer. Doctors gave him, at best, six months to live. When McGrahi found out, he applied for early release on compassionate grounds. Scotland's Minister of Justice granted the release. Many Americans and Scots were outraged by the decision. McGrahi had only served eight years of his life sentence. Letting him go now felt wholly unjustified. When a police convoy escorted McGrahi from the Greenock prison on August 20, 2009, angry citizens took to the streets in protest. They jeered at passing cars and shouted McGrahi's guilt, but it didn't make a difference. The convoy brought McGrahi to the airport, and he boarded a plane back to Libya that day. By nightfall, he was back in Tripoli, where the Libyan people were waiting with an opposite response. When McGrahi stepped off the plane, a crowd broke out into rapturous applause and threw rose petals at the 57-year-old. It was a true hero's welcome. The next day, he met with Gaddafi. In front of cameras, the leader threw his arms around the convicted felon and welcomed him home. It seemed like the whole affair was behind them now. Two years later, in 2011, Muammar Gaddafi was captured and executed by Libyan rebels. In 2012, Megrahi passed away in his home in Tripoli. He was 60 years old. His prognosis of six months had turned into three years. But the Pan Am investigation didn't die with him. In fact, there's plenty of people who don't believe McGrahi or Gaddafi were behind the attack at all. One of them is passenger Flora Swire's father, Jim. He thinks the United States accused the wrong men and the wrong country. 
He knows that getting to the bottom of what happened won't bring back his daughter, but it will bring him and many others closure. While Libya officially claimed responsibility, next time we'll explore three alternative theories about who else could have been behind the attack. Like conspiracy theory number one, the United States framed Libya, villainizing them further. Or conspiracy theory number two, Pan Am was taken down to silence two American operatives. And lastly, conspiracy theory number three, Iran was behind the attack with help from an international terrorist organization. For more than 30 years, the U.S. Justice Department has searched for the terrorists behind the Pan Am bombing. But it's possible that was all a misdirection. Maybe everything we know about the crash and the investigation is a cover-up for something far more nefarious. Thanks for tuning in to Conspiracy Theories. You can find all episodes of Conspiracy Theories and all other Spotify originals from ParCast for free on Spotify. We'll be back next time with a new episode. Until then, remember, the truth isn't always the best story. And the official story isn't always the truth. Conspiracy Theories is a Spotify original from ParCast. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler, Sound design by Dick Schroeder, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Trent Williamson, Carly Madden, and Bruce Katovich. This episode of Conspiracy Theories was written by Alex Bernard, with writing assistance by Natalie Pertsovsky and Lori Gottlieb. Fact-checking by Adriana Romero, and research by Bradley Klein. Conspiracy Theories stars Molly Brandenburg and Carter Roy. Hi, it's Carter, and I'm very excited to share a special announcement with you. On July 12th, ParCast is releasing its first book. It's titled Cults, Inside the World's Most Notorious Groups and Understanding the People Who Join Them. It's based on the popular Cults podcast that my friends Greg and Vanessa host. And starting right now, you can pre-order it at parcast.com cults. With the benefit of years of research and insights, this captivating book has put together a comprehensive narrative that tries to make sense of mysterious groups such as Nexium, Heaven's Gate, the Manson family, and more, exposing how shared beliefs can have deadly results and taking you deeper into the dark side of human nature than ever before. If you're a true crime fan, this book is a must-read. So, don't wait. There are limited copies available. Head to parcast.com slash cults now to pre-order cults, inside the world's most notorious groups and understanding the people who join them. That's parcast.com slash cults. And thanks again for supporting Parcast. Parcast.